1: The total career success with Ken and Cheryl Dawson. The mission of this radio show is to enable every listener to achieve their career aspirations and advance their careers, to achieve their potential, and meet their financial goals. Now, here are your hosts, Ken and Cheryl Dawson.
2: Welcome, everyone. Ken and Cheryl here. We're with Dr. Paula Calagiri, and she's a workplace expert and author of Get a Life, Not a Job. And uh, in a prolonged recession, such as we've all been enduring, it's easy to get discouraged if you're in a job search or in a role in which you're not satisfied. Today we're going to discuss strategies for, for, for career fulfillment, even in tough times. We'll answer questions like, how can you uh, spend more time on the work you enjoy? How you can identify long-term career choices to match your skills and your passions? ways to uh, transform your current job, and what to do to become layoff-proof, and how you can develop wealth-building activities for an inspiring and financially secure career. By continually developing yourself for activities you personally desire, you achieve the freedom to pursue multiple career options simultaneously. Listen in to learn the techniques to redesign your career for real financial freedom. But before we begin, I want to remind you of our seven free videos to help you get a better job, better pay, and a better life. To access these free videos, simply go to www.betterjobbetterlife.com. Now, to uh, briefly introduce Paula, uh, Dr. Kalajuri is a professor in the Human Resource Management Department at Rutgers University, where she has directed the Center for HR Strategy since 2001. She's been recognized as one of the most prolific authors in the field of international business for her work in global careers, international human resource management, and global leadership development. As a career expert, Paula has written Get a Job, Not a Life, and for the human resource management professionals, she has written Harmonizing Work, Family, and Personal Life, as well as Managing the Global Workforce. She's covered career-related topics for national networks and has hosted a pilot for a television show, Career Watch. Paula holds a PhD from Penn State University in Industrial and Organizational Psychology. Welcome Paula and thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us today.
3: Oh, it's my pleasure, Cheryl. Thank you, and thanks Ken.
2: Very
4: good to have you, Paula, and I just realized that uh, Cheryl said get a job, not a
2: life, and of get a life, not a job.
5: Did <laughs> I know So I we apologize for that. Well, I, was,
2: uh, I don't know. That was a slip, I guess. I was just <laughs> wanting to see if you were listening, Ken. Yes, I'm sure that's true, Cheryl. Well, tell us a little bit more about your career, uh, Paula, and how you became interested in workplace issues and global careers.
3: Sure. As you mentioned, I have a a PhD in industrial organizational psychology, and that actually came about because um, I was studying abroad in the mid-80s, and after studying in Rome for a semester, I had a great experience, came back. I was working with two social psychologists who saw me moping around the department, and they said, well, Paula, if that was such a powerful experience, why don't you go research it? Why don't you go study it? And uh, I didn't know exactly what that meant, <laughs> but they um, guided me toward uh, a degree program, a Ph.D. program, and I ended up in industrial organizational psychology studying what predicts people who do, uh, who, who do well living and working internationally. Uh, from that, I became interested in careers, and as you described, I do quite a bit of work in international careers, and I've been at that um, now since the mid-'80s.
2: Well, we, uh, of course, also do a lot of work with folks in career transition, and many of them are looking globally for global opportunities. We work extensively within the energy as well as the engineering and construction fields uh, being headquartered here in Houston, and so many of our uh, clients are are working internationally. Um, Have you found um, any significant differences between what, you know, drives people here in the States and in other parts of the world?
3: Mm. So th- yeah, it's interesting. So the question is really more from a comparative perspective. And um, so I've done a little bit of work on sort of comparing, say, U.S. workers to workers internationally, um, but also what makes Americans successful living and working internationally. So, so to answer your, your first question, um, it's really, you know, it's fascinating. When you compare career goals, especially think about like the 19- to 21-year-old new career just starting off in their career graduating college. When you look at um, those from more Anglo cultures, Western cultures, more highly developed cultures, what you'll see is is they tend to um, put work-life balance, personal freedom really out there as a primary career goal, whereas if you look at folks from um, Southeast Asia, Eastern Europe, Asia we tend to see a lot more, you know, desire to be a technical expert, desire to own your own business, desire to... There there, there seem to be more um, professional goals as opposed to fulfillment goals, which, again, a little bit, little bit interesting in terms of things that are happening now in globalization.
2: I've had uh, interest over the years uh, in the factors that uh, helps one succeed globally, and I saw a number of your articles online. We won't have time to cover that in depth today, but just briefly, what what are some of the key traits that you've identified in your research that really helps one succeed in a global, um, you know, working in other cultures and so forth? Sure. Well, you know, Cheryl, I
3: look a lot at the um, dispositional characteristics, those things that we have in our hearts and our minds that, that we bring with us when we travel internationally, when we work internationally, when we live internationally. And what I found it, it kind of again and again is that individuals who have um, a high, a high, say, emotional stability, emotional strength, people who can handle the ambiguity of a situation, people who have a healthy sense of humor who can laugh at themselves, people who are are comfortable in their own skin and willing to um, put themselves out there a little bit to meet folks from different cultures and to learn about their cultures, folks with an intellectual curiosity tend to do quite well.
2: Um, It's a a different set of characteristics. It's very interesting. Well, perhaps we can have another uh, interview sometime to go into that in uh, more depth, but we want to talk about your book today. What is the premise of Get a Life, Not a Job?
3: Right. You know, again, it kind of goes back to the way you introduced me. You were sharing that I, I was for nine years the director of the Center for HR Strategy. So this is a group of um, the leading faculty members in human resources who work with senior vice presidents of HR for some of the largest firms in the country. And and I know a lot about what the changes are and how they're happening in HR. About two years ago, as we all know, we started seeing companies do mass layoffs. And this started to get personal. Some family, dear friends were losing their jobs. Um, they went to me and said, okay, what, what's going on? What's happening? And I knew I knew the answer. I, you know, I had been in this space for a long time. I saw what was happening, um, and I wrote the book as a response to basically share with others. The backdrop really is what's changing now in the world of work, and how um, a lot of our career security, our, our professional security, our financial security will be based on those opportunities we create for ourselves. So that was the backdrop. The premise of the book is really to encourage folks to think about managing their career the same way they'd manage their investment portfolio, to really think about diversifying um, their income streams.
4: Although the um, economy today is obviously uh, uh, very difficult, the job situation is obviously very difficult as well, and people today in many cases don't have the luxury of doing what they might have done at some point. Uh, share with our listeners uh, what you're finding and discovering about uh, the workforce in general and um, how it is affected uh, the premise of your book.
3: Sure. There's one change that, that is making me a little bit nervous um, in the way people are responding, and that's really the idea of independent contractors Temporary workers, part-time employees. Usually, in the past, in the past with recessions, what we would see is that as soon as those start, those jobs started bouncing back. That full-time permanent imp- and those permanent jobs, those those you know, 40-hour week, nine-to-five type positions, those would come back. That's not going to be the case in this recession. And the reason, and th- this is really so critical for your listeners. This is so critical. The reason is that companies now more than ever before have taken a far more strategic approach to the way they handled those layoffs. So rather than, than actually cutting a you know, percentage of workforce, they actually did a, a far more sophisticated exercise in figuring out um, what positions essentially were core and, and part of their wealth-creating um, mission of the organization and which ones they really, frankly, could, could offshore or outsource or have done in a contingent way. So what we're seeing, and no no great surprise, is what we're seeing is a much greater use of the contingent workers um, and and far more people who even have those 9-to-5 jobs not in that secure position anymore. Again, my fear is that in the past people used to think that's a temporary situation, and from what I'm seeing with the numbers, that's going to be a far more permanent one.
4: Paula, the uh, prognosis for uh, obviously... uh Third quarter, fourth quarter is not good. We're talking in many cases about a double recession, uh, possibly uh, our unemployment rate, uh, the uh, gloomy people might say going to uh, 11, even 12 percent. Mm-hmm. In some cases in the country, in Detroit, for instance, uh, 20, 25, uh, very pessimistic outlook. Uh, what might you say to our listeners that might cheer them up in that regard?
3: Right. Yeah, hey, I, I wanted to share. I, I'm really a, a nice person. I'm a really happy person. I'm <laughs> person. Um, so, so I feel. I always feel a little, a little bit badly having to start start these these conversations with the reality of what's happening. Certainly, the unemployment rate not great. But what I think it gives us is the opportunity to get back to what we are phenomenal at as Americans. Really getting back to the passion and the motivation of of making things happen for ourselves. I mean, I, I, again, I, I'm, I'm an optimist. I'd like to see this as an opportunity for us to really retrench, understand what we're great at, and try to leverage the heck out of that um, to, to start creating wealth for ourselves versus, you know, passively waiting for organizations to, to um, hire us back. In this case, here's the new reality. We've got globalization out there, and these companies need to compete to succeed so we can't you know they're 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 trying to hold their heads above water too we all we all kind of need to retrench and kind of maybe go back to what we're great at
4: Paula one of the things that we do which is really a shot in the arm and a very positive message to people is this um even though uh the economy is gloom and doom and unemployment is uh um very bad um what we say to our clients and we're doing a lot of work with veterans right now is If you go into an organization fully prepared, A-plus resume, A-plus interviewing school, A-plus everything, and you go in and basically say, "Uh, sir, with all due respect, I've studied your company, I've looked at your product lines, and we're extremely interested in coming in and impacting your bottom line. I've put a game plan together in terms of how I can make and save your company money, and I'm extremely interested in talking to you about how I can do that." Now, you've got to work harder, smarter, longer to make that happen. It's a very tough economy. It's a very tough job market. But we have discovered, when we teach our clients how to do that, they're amazingly successful. And when you go in and basically say, I have an excellent and or outstanding track record, and that's exactly what I bring to your bottom line, mm-hmm. uh, the listener or the interviewer or the Small business owner is sitting there saying, "Holy mackerel! You can come in and make and save me money right away. I will create a position for you." Your thoughts?
3: I, I, first, I say congratulations. That's a great message um, to be sending, sending folks. And what I love about your message is that what you're doing is you're going to the, the core of what's needed now. If you want to create full-time stability within an organization, like you're suggesting with your with your clients, um, what you're sharing with them beautifully is that they have to be part of the wealth-creating positions of the organization. And so you're having them kind of cut through the work-your-way-into-it work and have them present themselves as part of what can help the organization create wealth, so going right to the strategic core, which is beautiful. Right. The other message I, I, I love um, is that, and I think this is maybe another message that we need to let everyone know, is that excellent performance um, is necessary but no longer sufficient in order to keep your job. Well, we're
2: we're going going to to talk more about that issue because it's such a big one in the next segment. We'll take a little break now, but stay tuned for more information on how you can advance your career.
5: News. News. Opinion.
6: Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: Are you dissatisfied with your current job or not earning what you need or deserve? If you're looking for a better job with better pay to enjoy a better life, go to BetterJobBetterLife.com and get our seven free videos that will jumpstart your future starting today we'll teach you how to create a cycle of success with the right mindset and plan of action get the interview you want with a world-class resume make your references work for you and beat the competition network your way into the hidden job market for better jobs and faster placement research more effectively the key to more job leads stronger interviews and higher pay Turn your interview into an offer-winning performance. Get the money now by negotiating from strength. Thousands have successfully used our proven techniques to make their dream job or career a reality. So grab our seven free videos that will transform your career. Go to BetterJobBetterLife.com.
7: Best.
0: are you unhappy with your life looking to get unstuck from your rut are your fears of happiness love and success holding you back you deserve a second chance Tune in to Second Chances with Susan Armstrong. Each show will help you find your inner success, whether it's financial success, relationship success, or the happiness and freedom in your personal life. You'll hear from Susan and some of the most influential guests who are talking the talk and walking that walk. Second Chances airs live Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel
6: stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com
1: you are listening to total career success with ken and Cheryl dawson Do you have a question or comment for the host about today's show? Please send an email to tcsonair at tcsworldwide.com. Now, back to the program.
2: Hello, this is Cheryl Dawson. We're back with Paula um, Caligieri. And, uh, Paula, we made a really excellent point at the last segment about the fact that sometimes performance, high performance, is not enough to keep your job, let's elaborate on some of the things that you have to be aware of and attuned to in order that you don't get uh, trapped in a situation of thinking you're safe when, um, you know, you could possibly be impacted by a layoff.
3: Sure. There's really two factors. If you want to move into progressively more um, secure roles, the idea is to try to get yourself into a position that's part of the wealth-creating core of the organization and to do that, think about um, two things, being both in a critical role but also having a unique set of, set of skills. So, so critical, critical for the organization, as you were describing, um, helping organizations how they make money, how they save money, whatever. And then on the other side of that, thinking about your skill set in terms of, of, of how easy would it be for, for an organization to replace you, either internally or externally. The more unique you can be, in the the more critical role, the more secure you'll be.
4: Paula, um, we've had a number of uh, guests recently who have talked about the new generation and how they are very different than those of the boomers and so forth. And they respond to different uh, uh, stimuli. They uh, march to a different drummer and oftentimes are uh, tuned off to many of the things that – uh, what the I might say the boomers used to do. Share with our listeners uh, your experience with uh, the new generation and what they respond to, and how uh, uh, say a boomer manager might be able to deal and uh, work with them.
5: Right.
3: So as you know, I spend a lot of time on a college campus as a university professor. So I'm, I'm with a lot of these you know 19 to 21 year olds. Uh, they want meaning. They want greater meaning in what they do. Um, they don't have a whole lot of patience like perhaps generations ahead of them did for, for getting there. They'd like to understand how they contribute. So all of those types of messages that, that a, a more senior manager can offer, a more junior person in terms of, you know, where they fit in, how this, this their piece of the puzzle actually fits into the broader picture. You know, all of those those things are terrific with with that younger generation. I, I will say one thing for, from having uh, get a life, not a job, come out. Um, I was really interested to see sort of of what age bracket resonated with the book the most. And what I'm finding it, it's fascinating. It's 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 sort of this this younger group, but also folks who are are boomers and closer to retirement. Um, the, the two things that they need are skills and a network and the younger generation they they understand the network concept exceptionally well but they don't have the skill set yet. Whereas the older generation they absolutely have the skill set um but they are kind of falling back into sort of the older Version of, of of their concept of networking, which which has really that game has changed a lot. So I, I, I find it real interesting watching the two generations work together, or actually um, respond to the changes in this uh, this world of work.
4: Exactly, one one of the real conflicts, of course, uh, comes in when a uh, manager at any age is uh, asked to do a performance appraisal on a on a Y or an X and. And the X and the Y oftentimes say, "Well, you know, I don't really respond well to performance appraisals." But you know, if that's the case, how indeed do you actually measure uh, an individual's performance if they don't respond to that appraisal?
5: Right.
4: I, I don't know. I don't know too many people who love performance
3: appraisals. I don't think they like giving them. I don't think they like receiving them. Um, and I think that one might might be a little bit more universal. Uh, my sense is, is everybody. You know it's just human in us to like feedback how the feedback is delivered might vary depending on our culture or values or whatever um, so I, I would actually I'm not a huge advocate of that you know quarterly annually whatever feedback um, I think it should be offered throughout you know reinforcing what's great, finding what's core, finding what people do well, leveraging what they do well, really reinforcing helping them them drive themselves and build their skills um, uh, you know, assuming if there's if there's challenges or concerns with their performance, that those things are addressed head-on as they happen. And I think most people who want to do well appreciate that, so that there's no great surprise at the time of
4: performance. Well, I don't disagree with that at all. But the issue is um, when, in fact, you have to lay people off. Oh, sure. And you have to oh, right. justify the reason you've done it. You have to have some basis for having done it. Sure, sure. That's and amazing. that's exactly one of the issues that oftentimes. Uh, you know, comes up in court and people sue companies for If you don't justify an individual performance or lack
2: of performance, you, you really don't have a legal leg to stand on. Right. Well, I think, uh, with the point you made uh, earlier, Paula, about the fact that the job uh, expectations are changing and the needs are changing within organizations, that it's really important to couple not only the performance uh, process but also the um, kind of looking at the future of the job needs, the workplace needs, and the individual's career development. Mm -hmm. And by linking those two, you can really get a very positive kind of succession planning as well as career development process in motion that meets both the company's needs as well as the individual's and thereby creating the kind of retention that both will be um, much happier with.
3: An ideal performance management system, absolutely.
2: Well, tell us uh, what are some of the things that hold people back from achieving the career that they'll really enjoy.
3: Talk about this a lot in the book. It's it's really you know two things. That that idea of, of debt and expenses are, are really are really big ones. You know, think about what forces, uh, especially again, the the new generation coming out of college. They're saddled with debt. They use they usually have to take a position because their their student loans are going to need to be paid back soon. Uh, rather than giving them a chance to explore possible career options, the same thing then then you know holds true. They they get their first position. They start living a, a different sort of life than they did when they were students. They gain more debt. They have more expenses. <laughs> Next thing you know, they're sort of getting. Uh, um, maybe you'll say bound to a, a career rather than, than you know, exploring one or, or finding fulfillment from it or, or moving to a, an opportunity that might give them greater development but maybe not necessarily a higher income. Even though longer term, the greater development will pay off. So, so people make, make many times difficult career choices when they're, when they have higher debt and higher expenses.
2: Yeah, so really addressing some of the issues that can help you uh if you get, you know, trapped in a situation where you've got a job loss for a period of time to have some uh some means, some backup um savings and to plan for that contingency that 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 might occur. And in the book, you also talk, um, Paula, a lot about um, doing multiple things that can prepare you for revenue outside of your main job. Talk a little bit about the career acts and how that can play into the the planning process.
3: Sure, I, without a doubt, I believe that people should have multiple sources of income. I said that at the top of your show. You know, th- this idea that. Um, We need to manage our careers like we manage our portfolios. The idea is to diversify and really think through um, what are you good at, what are your talents, how could they be leveraged either through, you know, active sources of income, passive sources of income, um, part-time work, contracting work, full-time employment, whatever it may be, um, but how can you leverage what you do well as your primary asset to have multiple sources of income. It's really, it's really very much
4: the concept of a career act. Well, one of the questions that often comes up is uh, what's going on around the country. And, of course, New Jersey is, uh, by the way, uh, I grew up in Jersey. I grew up in Lakewood. And, okay. um, of course, we taught at Somerset College. But one of the things that uh, everyone in the country is intrigued by is Government Christie and, you know, what he's doing in New Jersey and the effect he's having and, you know, he's... Uh, uh, obviously making some very, very significant inroads by having to make some major cuts. What, what kind of impact is that having on the, the people, and what is your experience as, a, as you talk to folks in Jersey?
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think, yeah, boy, you know, New Jersey is an interesting state, but, but really true all over the country, right? What we're seeing now are um, higher-skilled workers being laid off. So it's not just, you know, we hear a lot about Michigan and Ohio because a lot of the um, auto companies have the layoffs, you know, these math layoffs. What we're also seeing, though, in New Jersey are a lot of the pharma companies. I recently did a session, and a lot of the folks in the room had, had Ph.D.s and advanced degrees. Um, they were recently laid off, and they were trying to figure out how to configure their skills, many of them thinking about their skills in entrepreneurial ways. Um, I, you know, I'm, I kind of keep this apolitical but because I think, I think people – Everybody really does need to get back to, you know, what are they good at? We, 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 really, we really, as a country, just need to get back to some of that original spirit that we have um, and, and, and really do think about our talents in terms of, of ways to leverage them and, and move ourselves ahead um, instead of passively relinquishing that control over to organizations. So what's nice about the administration within New Jersey right now is he's basically saying, folks, you know, you gotta got to own this. We've got to, you know,
2: you've you got to work this through for yourselves. Okay. Well, we're going to talk more about taking responsibility for your career when we get back from break, so stay tuned.
6: the experts call toll-free right now 1-866-472-5787 Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your questions. that's 1-866-472-5787 thank you for calling voiceamerica.com
0: are you dissatisfied with your current job or not earning what you need or deserve if you're looking for a better job with better pay to enjoy a better life Go to betterjobbetterlife.com and get our seven free videos that will jumpstart your future starting today. We'll teach you how to create a cycle of success with the right mindset and plan of action. Get the interview you want with a world class resume. Make your references work for you and beat the competition. Network your way into the hidden job market for better jobs and faster placement. Research more effectively the key to more job leads, stronger interviews, and higher pay. Turn your interview into an offer-winning performance. Get the money now by negotiating from strength. Thousands have successfully used our proven techniques to make their dream job or career a reality. So grab our seven free videos that will transform your career. Go to BetterJobBetterLife.com.
8: It's always 5 o'clock somewhere. Thursdays at 5 Eastern Time, be sure to tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel for Cocktails for Everyone with host Catherine Stanton Schiff. Catherine will take you behind the scenes of your favorite beer, wine, and spirit brands, the people that create them, and the restaurants that serve them. The program will keep you on the pulse of the beverage industry and may even keep you a step ahead of the bartender. Cocktails for Everyone airs live Thursdays at 5 Eastern Time. That's 2 Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
6: Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: You are listening to Total Career Success with Ken and Cheryl Dawson. Do you have a question or comment for the hosts about today's show? Please send an email to TCS air at TCSWorldwide.com. Now, back to the program.
2: Welcome back. Kenneth Cheryl here with Paula Calagiri, and we're talking about the importance of taking responsibility for your own career development and to realize that it might involve several different uh, career acts uh, and maybe even simultaneous career acts. Paula, are you suggesting that people should have two jobs?
5: <laughs> uh
2: you
3: know, no, I certainly wouldn't. You know, a lot of
2: a lot of folks do think about this
3: concept of of having multiple jobs as being highly negative. Of course, you know, you think about people who have to work multiple jobs in order to make ends meet. I am absolutely not talking about that. I'm really talking about thinking about multiple income streams and thinking about your career as a, as a sort of a package of these income streams or career acts, and that in the, and just like you'd work any one career where you'd start say at an entry level role and then work your way up what i try to do is help folks think about that simultaneously so if it, just take my own career so so starting off working on my phd in order to eventually become a full professor that's kind of a tra- trajectory of a career um, more recently starting off as as an author or starting off in media or doing something that actually brings me back to while well, one act of the career is maybe much at a much higher level another act is at a much lower level and but, but willing to work your way, you know, up across
2: multiple across multiple acts. Can you think of some examples that our listeners might relate to um, just that are fairly famous? Oh, sure, sure. I mean,
3: Oprah is a great example. <laughs> she
2: has a media company. but <laughs> She's a top Right, she's an easy
3: one. Uh, Cindy Crawford is sort of one that people like. She's a model and, and, and is a media person, but she also has a, you know, a clothing line, furniture line, perfume line. She does lots of things. With, with celebrities, we're comfortable with that. We're, we're comfortable seeing them do multiple things. When we, when we reflect that back on ourselves, we often hear people say, oh, well, you really need to focus or you need to you know, get serious about your career. We would never tell a celebrity that they should focus or get serious. No. We think they're <laughs> leveraging their celebrity. So we might not have the, the infrastructure, we might not have the wealth that they do, but we certainly have the ideas and the, the, the skill set. So I, I really want us to, to
2: give ourselves some of that um, leeway that we would give celebrities. And what are some examples of um, things that people can combine that are more practical and usually at the level of, you know, people just getting started out, some of the things that they can do?
3: Sure. I, I, can, I have examples just, just at every level. Um, I have a 16-year-old stepdaughter who's terrific, and she came home decided she wanted a job one day. And so, of course, my husband and I weren't, weren't terribly excited about this, but we said, okay, let, let's talk to her about what are what you, the skills that she have. Well, it turns out she loves to read. And she's a great critical writer. She, she actually is, is really terrific with this. So what she's she's done is she set up a little business for herself in that she helps um, literary agents critique books for the teen and preteen market. So it was taking a skill that she has in, in a way that she could leverage it to to have an income stream. What's nice is that it doesn't need to interfere with her her schoolwork. <laughs> she yeah, absolutely. You can do that at, all over the heart yeah uh, but, but i mean it was just kind of one one fun example profitable hobbies are a real typical one um you know building that up is as something again it's usually a, if it's a hobby it tends to be some, something that someone both enjoys and is particularly good at some people like to leverage that into an income stream oftentimes you see lots of people doing things for passive income um, say for instance um, owning property or building a website with affiliate marketing or you know, it's lots and lots of examples but but there are these folks who are doing them, they're fascinating in that they, they really do engage in multiple things um, and feel very secure because
4: they do have all these
2: sources of income.
4: Paula, well, what are you discovering about uh, employers? Um, they obviously uh, are constantly looking at the bottom line, and as we mentioned earlier, I, we don't want to be doom and gloom, but the reality is uh, Washington oftentimes is not, uh, allowing them to get loans and hire people, and the situation looks pretty bleak. Is, are the employers, do you see any hope there relative to entrepreneurship and uh, helping employers move in that direction?
3: Boy, what we're seeing with the numbers is that we have, um, they're, they're, they're leveraging more independent contractors. I'd say now is not a great time to be a consultant. But a pretty good time to be an in independent contractor. In other words, being the person that has a, 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 a tangible skill set, a world-class tangible skill set, and then being able to walk into the empl- the prospective employer who might not have the resources to hire full time, but would have the resources to bring the individual on as a contractor. So, so he or she then is, you know, becoming his or her own employer, but working for has a client in um, a, com- a different organization. So. I'm seeing a good bit more of that. I, I think the other piece of that is certainly our employers okay with people doing multiple things. And, and of course, that's a, that's another one we could explore if you're interested.
4: Um, the common theme in, among many people is they, they used to have one job. Now they have two or three. Does that fall under that category uh, or any of the... Three jobs, entrepreneurial or something that at least has some creativity and excitement in it.
3: Sure, sure. It's um, boy, it's it, the easiest way to describe it is is to try to help people stay in control of their career. And and if you think if you think about the way most people enter an organization, they work really hard to get the job, and as soon as they get the job, of course, they work really hard in the job. But in terms of managing the career, they, they relinquish that over to the organization. So the, the mind frame that, that, that the book is hoping to change is that, okay, so you want to work full-time. That's terrific. Of course, that's a wonderful option that's secure and, and everything else for many. So, so, but while you're there, don't stop thinking about ways to manage your own career. So whether it's, it's investing in yourself to be even better in the job that you're currently in or investing in yourself for a side entrepreneurial, maybe more creative option, or investing in yourself to build up a, a passive source of income over time, or investing in yourself. So you can see the pattern. It, it's it's not so much the option of going out and getting multiple multiple jobs. I, I wouldn't advocate for that, but it's the idea of, of investment in
2: oneself as one's primary asset. Well, I think there's amount, a certain amount of um, – uh, willingness to, as you said earlier, kind of step out and take some risk. Uh, we work with one organization right now on the corporate side of our business, uh, consulting business, uh, where the employees are kind of sitting back and, um, and comfortable in the roles that they have, and yet the organization has many jobs available, and this happens to be a global company, and they're wanting people to apply for those jobs and begin to move people around in the organization. Um, yet there's a hesitancy, I guess, <clears throat> what you mentioned earlier about the security issue of of stepping out and doing that. What do you say to people to help them to think, you know, a little more aggressively about um, stepping out and doing some, getting out of their comfort zone?
5: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: I,
3: I would remind them that you know, so many folks think that the most secure role is the traditional uh, nine to five. 40 hours a week. I think I would remind folks of some of the statistics. There was a, a piece of research that came out of the Center for Workforce Development that showed that um, roughly 60% of Americans were surprised when they found out they were about to be laid off. So if you think about um, security, you, you, we need to realize that we might not be as secure as we once thought, even though we're still getting that, that weekly paycheck. Um, So I would encourage folks to sort of just just maybe allow themselves to feel a little bit uncomfortable insofar as it it enables them to sort of take some more ownership. As they take ownership, really looking at that corporate role and saying, okay, where is my company now? Where is it going in the future? Strategically, am I aligned? Is my skill set aligned with where the organization is going? perhaps the smartest, most secure thing they could do would be to take the position that the company is offering them in the other in the other business line or other location or, or
2: wherever, um, because that might be the most
3: secure possibility for them.
9: Well, you
2: mentioned a very important aspect of that, and that's uh, keeping the dialogue, and it might be a multi-log, but keeping the conversations going uh, with, of course, the, the individual that you might report to, but other key uh, people within the organization, so you can get a sense of, you know, where the growth opportunities are, and how you can leverage those to help develop your own skills and ability. You, I mean, you even mentioned that job security can actually be greater when you're engaging in multiple career acts. And how do you, how do you see that playing out uh, within the organization?
5: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I always you know, I think about that five-legged stool. <laughs> if you knock out one of the
3: legs, the stool is still very, very secure. So if you have multiple sources of income, you have a degree of freedom that others don't to take maybe a few risks, to to take a few chances that might, in fact, um, pay off very well. What I, what I get very nervous is when I see someone who's in a role almost a bit too comfortable and they're in a support role as opposed to a line role. They're in a, a a support role that could easily be cut, yet they have no additional source of income and are doing nothing to reinvest in themselves or their skill set. That that's sort of the those are the folks I'm I'm the most concerned about now. Um,
2: Absolutely. And in Job Search: A Total System, we we spend a lot of time in Chapter One and Two, uh, helping people to address, you know, where their strengths are, where their greatest interests are. Um, you know, things that they uh, really are comfortable with as well as things that energize them and that they have a passion for so that they can begin to explore those opportunities both within their uh, primary employer as well as thinking about creatively other career acts that could get them engaged. Mm -hmm. And uh, what what are examples, um, uh, Paula, in which an individual in this last minute for this segment uh, to make sure that you're not making your employer nervous about other things you might be doing.
3: Sure. In one minute, take the supervisor newspaper and mother test. If, if you're doing something else that you couldn't share with your supervisor, it's probably you're probably doing something you shouldn't be doing. If you're doing something that you wouldn't want to be on the front page of the newspaper, you probably shouldn't be doing it. And if you're doing something that your mother would be embarrassed about, you probably shouldn't be doing that. So I would actually go back. If you really need sort of the quick test, I would go to those three. But, but certainly no conflicts of interest, making sure you're maintaining high-quality performance in whatever career act you're doing at that, at that time. Make sure you te- separate the time spent and never, ever, ever misuse your employer's resources. You.
2: Well, those are excellent uh, tips. And I think, uh, you know, all of us, get that gut feeling when, we, when we're doing something that we know uh, would not be appreciated, and so uh, just doing that gut check as well is a good thing to make sure that you're on the right track with the development work that you are doing. Well, we have another segment to come, so stay tuned for more about uh, how you can prepare yourself to get a life and not just a job.
6: Opinion. Can you hear me? Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: Are you dissatisfied with your current job or not earning what you need or deserve? If you're looking for a better job with better pay to enjoy a better life, go to BetterJobBetterLife.com. And get our seven free videos that will jumpstart your future starting today. We'll teach you how to create a cycle of success with the right mindset and plan of action. Get the interview you want with a world-class resume. Make your references work for you and beat the competition. Network your way into the hidden job market for better jobs and faster placement. Research more effectively. The key to more job leads, stronger interviews, and higher pay. Turn your interview into an offer winning performance. Get the money now by negotiating from strength. Thousands have successfully used our proven techniques to make their dream job or career a reality. So grab our seven free videos that will transform your career. Go to betterjobbetterlife.com.
6: successful life the internet's number one talk station number one talk station voiceamerica.com
1: you are listening to total career success with ken and Cheryl dawson do you have a question or comment for the host about today's show? Please send an email to TCS On Air at tcsworldwide.com. Now, back to the program.
2: Welcome back. Ken and Cheryl here with Dr. Paula Caliguri, and we've been covering some great ground on how you can uh, have multiple career ac- acts or activities that will help to energize your career development and uh, position you to uh, really be, uh, in a way, a bulletproof when it comes to, uh, to layoffs. In fact, Paula, you assert that by enjoying multiple career acts, we can actually be more fulful, fulfilled and less frenzied, uh, even as we learn to accomplish more with our time than ever. How do you explain this paradox?
3: Sure. You know, it's interesting. Time has always been uh, a fascinating concept for psychologists but when I was doing the research for Get a Life, Not a Job, as you know from the book, there's a lot of case studies of folks who are doing these multiple career acts. When I would ask someone who was incredibly happy in their, in their roles and their careers and what they were doing, if I asked them, how many hours per week do you work? If they loved what they did, they had a really hard time answering the question. They would hum, they'd oh, they'd mm, not sure, well, and then, then they would make a guess. If I asked somebody who was in a, in a job that they disliked how many hours per work. They had it down to the minute. <laughs> I worked 37 and a half, what, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. They knew exactly how many hours. So what, what I was finding and, and what psychologists have been finding for a very long time is that when you get into the when flow and you get into this position where your skills are matching um, the task at hand and you're enjoying what you're doing, you lose track of time and it does become energizing and it is a source of happiness. So, I'm just trying to get more people, more people there and doing it in a way that they're also um, you know building some wealth for themselves and getting some security.
5: Well,
2: we talk a lot about passion as well in job search a total system, because when you are focusing on what uh, what you really love to do, you're going to be better at it. For one thing, you're going to develop your skills even more to that expert level. Uh, and as you say, uh, time will just seem to fly by. But is there any times when you shouldn't follow your passion? Right now, that, that's a that's a great great question.
3: The the issue of natural ability. So so I'm five foot three and I'm I'm not at all athletic. If my dream was to become a professional basketball player or something, you know, come on, I'm I'm limited by my natural ability. There's no amount of me being passionate or me learning about the, the, the sport of basketball that would make me great at this. So I think I think a healthy self-awareness has always been sort of that number one issue. What are your What are your natural skills? What are your natural abilities? What can you become world class in doing? Um, how can you leverage those skills and talents in a way that you can find fulfillment? So I think I think that that issue is of of course for everyone. Um, there's a healthy self uh, self awareness needed. But but I will add to that real quickly that there's a lot of positions that 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 we could all achieve if we had the tenacity and, and the drive and the hard work and the passion for. Not everything's bound
4: by physical limits. Paula, what um, what do you see as the uh, job market for college and university students? Um, it's very difficult, obviously, for high school students. But Many of the seniors are taking some of the um, minimum wage jobs. But for college and university students, uh, what do you see as some of the uh, – or what is your projection? What does your crystal ball say about what's coming down the road?
3: Right. Yeah. I, again, I, I, go, I always go back to the two things on which people, people gain jobs, skills, absolutely skills, and network. And so what I'm seeing is that, is that universities are, you know, around the country, around the world, need to focus more on the tangible skills we're giving um, our students. So upon graduation, what are they able to do and what are they able to do at a very high level? And the second thing is forcing the students, forcing the students, encouraging the students uh, to really help and start leveraging the networks that are, that are inherent within the, within the university, such as alumni networks or the faculty networks or opportunities to do research and, and the like. So I would say in terms of internally to the university, those two things um, w- will need to be enhanced. I can't say changed because they're already in place. And then on, on the outside, I, I would say that the, what, what I'm seeing is really the way students need to be approaching college with a much keener eye toward job placement. So, so my, my department, just as an example, we have a master's degree of human resource management, Right now, um, HR, of course, it always is. is It's a, it's a it's a support function. So even in this economy, we still placed ninety three percent of our graduates, of our U.S. graduates, because we have so many organizations that still come onto our campus because they like the way we're training these students. So you can pull that example out and say, it, as a student, become an educated consumer of the type of degree you're about to receive. In that you know, in terms of the degree you're about to receive, what type of placement is associated with that? And that
4: was exactly to... the point I was going to make. Uh, just, uh, Cheryl and I oftentimes will, will go out to dinner and we'll inevitably ask the young student, uh, you know, are you going to school? What are you graduating? Or how can we help you with your job search? And oftentimes they have degrees, but they have no idea what they want to do. They they have degrees in things that. They're having, you know, they're going to have a very difficult time finding placement as opposed to engineering where there's huge, huge needs. That's right. Huge.
5: Uh,
4: do you, are you finding that as
9: well?
3: Absolutely. Absolutely, Ken. Absolutely. And, and again, you know, I think it's, it's an inherent. I think what we do as parents, we try so much to force the kids into selecting a major quickly or, you know, getting something tangible quickly as opposed to maybe encouraging them while they're still in school to explore the heck out of their options, that's the time to really explore. Unfortunately, too many of the students, they fall into a major because either, you know, for lots of reasons, either it's what they were told was a good major or what they, were to- what they learned was a pretty easy major or-, or whatever the reason is, they end up in a major and then really don't know what to do with it, have no real connection to it. I'd much rather see the students explore the heck out of their opportunities when they're in college and then really try to figure out what are they naturally gifted for? What are they good at? What are they talented? What do they like? How do they like to work?
2: Sometimes well, you you so bring up a number how. of excellent points, and and I think that research is one of the key points. A lot of the young folks that we work for, for, many of them are already graduated and, you know, haven't found the right job yet. So they come through our total system program and researching opportunities, researching industries, sub industries, researching various companies. And taking um, opportunities to do internships while they're still in school; these are all ways that they can become more self-aware, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Paula. And also at the same time, be exploring um, new opportunities, maybe that they weren't uh, aware of. Well, you know, where they'll really uh, blossom. Well, for people who might um, uh, be holding back a bit on doing some of the changes that you mentioned. Just in the last minute here, what do you recommend they do to kind of get, the, get, get started and get going?
5: Mm-hmm.
3: Boy, just build a, build a healthy self-awareness about what you're great at, what, what gives you that greatest source of happiness, what's most fulfilling. Have confidence in, your, in yourself. Reinvest in yourself to build that confidence. Be tenacious. Really keep going to try to make whatever that career goal or career, career dream is. And, and, and really have a realistic plan and execute Absolutely. on that plan.
2: Well, those are all key points. And uh, uh, just uh, as we close the show here, where can folks get more information about uh, the book and other resources that you have available?
3: Sure. I have some free career tools on my website, and the website is com.
2: Okay, excellent. Well, we really thank you, uh, Paula, for sharing with us today. And I want to remind everyone um, that is currently in a job search or might, might be considering one, to access our seven free videos at www.betterjobbetterlife.com. And that will have some very practical ways that you can begin the process of finding your next best opportunity, whether to career act or a real job uh, in any direction. Well, thank you so much for a great show, Paula. We wish you the best in your pursuits. Thank you. Uh, we'll have another great program next week. So come back and be with us then. Thanks, Cheryl. Thanks, Ken.
1: Thanks again for joining us this week on Total Career Success with Ken and Cheryl Dawson. Remember to join us again next Monday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.
10: every Monday at 1 p.m. PST, right here on the Voice America channel.
11: voice america sports channel Voice America Network proudly presents the Catherine Zock Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and, yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern to the Catherine Zock Show on the Voice America channel. Get
0: ready for a show that breaks ground on the subject of women in motorsports and what it takes to dream, believe, achieve gas and go with alio is all about the movement that is happening lightning fast in women's racing you'll get a wide array of perspectives from the drivers to the fans as well as what it takes to be
10: the following program is being brought to you on the voice america variety channel for more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest
6: Good morning. Are you ready to take charge of your destiny and become a leader? A true leader? Welcome to Leadership Every Day with Marguerite Calloway. Our program will explore specific aspects of the real work of effective leadership and why it matters. Our guests are leaders from around the globe and from all walks of life, sharing their own leadership journeys with you. Now, your host, Marguerite Calloway. Hello,
12: everyone And welcome to Leadership Every Day. I'm Marguerite Calloway, and I will be your host for this next hour. I created this radio show to help you to become a better leader. There is no question about it that at this time in human history, and this time in countries around the world, that there's never been a greater need for leadership. And we find. And there's a great deal of work that's going on to help us understand who are good leaders, what they do, and so forth. We find that people have a natural aptitude. Some people are naturally strong in their leadership capabilities, but we know that many more people can become better leaders or become leaders even if they never thought they could if they actually take on the task of leadership development. I've worked with leaders for my entire professional life, and I feel very comfortable putting together a framework for you over the course of these radio programs to have you learn from leadership from a leadership expert, a practitioner, and then get down to the work of how at the end do I apply what I've learned today to what I'm doing in my own life. So this is our first show, and I could think of no one better to begin the show than my dear friend and colleague, Carrie Eaton who is the chief executive officer of St. Vincent's Medical Center in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And she um, is not only the leader of that organization, but she's a leadership, national leader in the area of patient safety. So we're going to first learn a little bit more about what Carrie is and who she is and how she became a leader. She's one of those who had a natural leadership attribute, but as long as I've known her, she has always focused on developing herself and becoming more capable. But we're going to learn about her journey, and then in the second part of the show, we are going to get into the very specific topic of today is is that when doing things right is a matter of life and death, we're going to be talking about patient safety and what leaders have to do in healthcare institutions in the United States, all over the world, to make sure that the people who come into those hospitals or clinics are receiving the right kind of care at the right time. So with that, I'd like to introduce Carrie. Carrie, g- good morning. Well, good morning, Maggie, and thank you very much for having me. I
9: do want to first make one small correction. You promoted me. Um, <laughs> I am not the chief executive officer. I'm the chief administrative officer at Saint Vincent's Medical Center, and so I just wanted to um, to, to make sure <laughs> that I didn't take credit for a position that I'm that I'm um, not in. But okay. thank you very much for the generous um, welcome. It's nice to be here.
12: Well, thank you. And actually, we will get into what the chief administrative officer role is relative to the chief executive officer, but uh, thanks for the correction on that. Well, as you know, one of the things that I feel pretty uh, strongly about, and I'm certainly not the only person who does, is the recognition that the first aspect of leadership work begins with an inner journey into who you are. And so I'd like to begin the conversation with you about how how you first Experienced leadership, can you talk about somebody in your life growing up? It could be a family member or a teacher or um, any individual that left an impression on you about what it meant to be in a position of leadership well that
9: that actually is a great question and there 's probably two um, two things i 'd like to say first of all is that i um, grew up the parent of of uh, I grew up the child of a, a couple of parents, both of whom went to college um, after their children were born and made lives and careers for themselves. So I actually watched two people who um, made things happen for themselves and made decisions, did things like raise families and went to school and held jobs, all at the same thing. So I believed in um, an individual's ability to just sort of do what it took to get somewhere, to make their own future happen. And I think they were great role models in that respect. Uh, Probably the second most meaningful thing that happened to me was I landed in an emergency department as a staff nurse and... um, you know I have shared with you in the past I pretty much always found myself ending up being in charge of things and people sometimes thought I was in charge when I wasn't in charge and probably my brothers thought that when I was a kid too and didn't like it very much <laughs> but um, but I often found myself in charge of things and there's a woman by the name of Helen Baker who was the director of emergency services at the time and I was young I want to say I was about 24 years old and she um, took me aside and told me she wanted to develop a, a nurse manager uh, role in the emergency department as she took on more responsibilities across the organization and she thought that I was the right person for the job. And I will always forever be grateful to her. I still keep in contact with her because she saw um, leadership qualities in me that I quite hadn't recognized were there in the first place. I mean, some of them had always been in me, so I didn't know that they were any different from, I just thought that everybody did that and everybody thought that way and everybody behaved that way. And she helped me understand that maybe I had some um, leadership attributes and some talents and some gifts that could be put to good use in leadership, and I'll always be grateful for her for helping me see what was um, what was there, because I truly was shocked when she told me that. And she actually promoted me to be a nurse manager in that emergency department, and again, I was probably the youngest kid, and I do say kid, in that environment. I had so much to learn, and there were women in their 40s, and what I learned from her was courage, because it took an awful lot of courage to... Promote me when there had been so many others who also were good at leadership, but had much more longevity in the department. Um, that takes a lot of courage. So she, 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 I still, I credit her with being my, um, my leverage board.
12: Well, that's an important uh, point that you're making. Is there? You, you talked about two things. You could always feel kind of you. You found yourself being in charge. Um, that speaks to the notion that that. One of the qualities of leaders is, is that they are, they find themselves wanting to make things better. I mean, effective leaders. Not leaders to have power for power's sake, but wanting to make things better. And oftentimes people find it within them very early on, but without that little nudge from someone such as your, uh, leverage board, you can't possibly, uh, you often go around feeling something's not quite right. Uh, how did how did you accept that aspect of yourself as you grew to understand that you really were a leader and are one? Well, I think
9: that, you know, I've always been a high achiever, and that's a double-edged sword, but the... Um, what I've always been able to be true to, and I think this is something that really matters, and I'm grateful for it in in my own life, is that I, I, not, I tell people, I said, I know this sounds a little Pollyanna, but truly I'm motivated and passionate about trying to make things better, um, better after I've been there than they were before I got there. And you really need to be... Um, to be honorable, um, to be a, a good listener. There's all kinds of different traits you need to have in order to make things better off bef- um, after you were there than before uh, you'd been there. And so, uh, you know, I think that that's what motivates me to make sure that I learn from my mistakes, um, to make sure that I give everybody in the room a voice, um, ways to be heard. Um, you know, there's just a whole, care- a whole set of values and traits that I think go along with excellent leadership. Um, I've been... I'm a very passionate person and I don't sort of believe, I believe in possibility um, and I'm not one to, I believe, if, I, I believe things can be done that often we just haven't found the way. And I think that maybe is a very differentiating characteristic than uh, many others who just figure things can't be done because it hasn't happened yet.
12: Oh that's such a great uh, um, comment about leaders. I mean that that's what you actually do find that leaders really are motivated to take on quote impossible challenges or unlikely challenges. And um, it that can't come from the outside. It really has to come from within. You spoke of courage as one of the you had to uh, demonstrate courage and you watched her demonstrate courage. You had to demonstrate courage when you really think strongly about two or three of the values or the qualities that you are as a person that you admire the most uh, what are they well
9: courage is one of them I'm you know I never thought of myself as a risk taker and I think that's because I never would jump out of airplanes or any of those kinds of things where my I might be named but it, of late I've decided that perhaps maybe I am a risk taker because I'm willing to make decisions that aren't popular when I believe that they're really the right thing to do. And I've come to understand that that's perhaps courage. And so I think that leaders really do need to be courageous. Um, I also think leaders need to have humility and to recognize that um, you need to surround yourself with really wonderful people with similar passions who want to make things better. And when you put all of that talent together in one room, it, it almost becomes unstoppable. But if you think that you have to have all the answers or that Euro is right, you'll lose so much. So the humility to know that you don't need to be right, but you need to help make sure that there's somebody who's right in the room um, is an important characteristic. And um, integrity, I mean, personal uh, integrity. There's uh, so much competition in the world it's easy to try to go down the sip Slippery slope of um, one-upmanship and all that sort of thing. So I think you need to be true to, you know, doing the right thing and not at the expense of others. Um, passion, um, having um, maybe passion and compassion. So passion for what you're doing, I think, is an insen- a- an essential ingredient for uh, leaders. And to make sure that whatever is done with compassion, sometimes very difficult decisions need to be done, and sometimes they can be painful for some. And so, to lack um, compassion is can be. Um, really a deal-killer in leadership. I think that empathy and compassion are important. And discipline. Discipline is another trait I think that is important. Um, You do need to pay attention. You need to make sure that you're learning all the time, that you're paying attention, you have situational awareness, you're paying attention to the environment, the people that work around you the situation, um, need to know when to pay attention to the big picture and when to pay attention to the detail. Um, I once read, and I wish I knew who who said it, that you need to know when to be on the dance floor and when to be on the balcony and uh, make sure that you're in the right place at the right time. And you need to listen to those around you.
10: Yeah.
9: Um, so all those things I think um, go into um, sort of the values and traits I think are important for uh, leadership. Generosity, I didn't mention generosity. Probably the most favorite thing that I do in leadership is develop other leaders and help them realize what's inside of them, like was done for me. And I found that if I develop really wonderful leaders around me, um, boy, the job just seems to happen all by itself when I get to do that. So.
12: Well, those are profound comments. Right now, it's time to take a short break. Uh, this is Marguerite Calloway, and my guest is Carrie Eaton. And you are listening to Leadership Every Day on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stay tuned when we come back. We will be uh, specifically talking about the challenge of patient safety and being a leader in a healthcare organization. We'll be back. Talk, talk,
6: talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Marguerite Calloway has been quoted as saying, in spite of very real challenges, effective leaders are able to create order out of chaos. Garner new resources, set organizational priorities, implement needed changes, and create an empowered workforce. They are not just lucky. They have mastered the real work of leadership. Are you a leader who goes to bed at night and wish you could do better in certain situations? Do you sometimes wonder why things don't always go as planned? Do you want to see members of your team become better leaders? Do you look at your own boss and say, I could do better if only I had a chance? At the Callaway Leadership Institute, we are committed to helping you become a more effective leader. We offer a variety of practical hands-on leadership development activities, face-to-face workshops, and comprehensive in-house leadership development programs, as well as ongoing seminars offered both in person and online. For more information about the Callaway Leadership Institute, visit CallawayLeadership.com.
11: Interstate Sportsman Talk Radio Show brings two well known outdoorsmen to the Voice America Network with hunting and fishing info news, talking about everything from new sporting gear, places to hunt and fish, and getting more from your recreation time. Join host Brock Ray and Don Kirk Friday mornings at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 Eastern, for the Interstate Sportsman on the Voice America Channel.
6: Stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are tuned in to Leadership Every Day with your host, Marguerite Calloway. To become part of today's discussion, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's one eight six six four seven two five seven eight eight. You may also send an email to marguerite at com. Now, back to the program.
12: Hello again, and I am here with my guest, Carrie Eaton. And in this segment of the show, we actually are going to talk about the second aspect of uh, 21st century leadership, and that is that really effective leaders at this day and time have got to be realistic about what the reality is that they are facing. That doesn't mean that they don't have a vision of where they're trying to go, whether they're trying to go there for their organization or their community or society in general, but um, you can't rely on wishful thinking. The critical thing is to first come to terms with what are the problems and the issues that you are, are facing today. Now One of the things that we are going to focus on with leadership, I've learned that if you can get someone to talk about a specific aspect of leadership as it relates to their work, because leaders are practitioners of the art of leadership, you need to focus in on a particular area so they can share what they learn around this. So the title of this episode is, When Getting It Right is a Matter of of Life and Death. Let me explain what I meant by that title. When you or someone you love enters a hospital emergency room or is admitted for an elective procedure, you assume that everything is in place to keep you safe. And yet, objective scientific data reveals that over 150,000 people each year actually develop life-threatening illnesses while in a hospital in the United States. I want you to know that this issue is not unique to the United States, it's true all over the world in developed and developing countries. And the phrase that is used to describe this is something called iatrogenic. And that means uh, it's a dictionary word that defines other relating to illnesses caused by medical examination. You come in with one procedure or you come in with one diagnosis or you're trying to find this out, and while you're in the hospital you develop, or a clinic, you develop something else. So this is uh, what you're dealing with. Now, trust me, nobody, I mean, there may be a few very, distorted individuals, but I would say 99.9% of the healthcare professionals working around the globe have no desire to intentionally make a patient sicker, but it does happen. This has been an area of focus in the United States in healthcare for at least a decade, perhaps longer, and this is one of the areas that Carrie has taken on since 2002. She actually assumed the responsibility of... Um, Taking over the patient safety programs at Saint Vincent's Medical Center, and in that role, she actually redefined what um, what were the pa- patient safety methods and procedures. So rather than me telling you what she did, why don't we talk with have Carrie describe what in detail what what are the issues of patient safety, what are the processes, and then we'll move to the kinds of leadership that is needed. So Carrie, sure, um, it's a tall order. I mean, I actually teach a whole
9: graduate level course on um, patient safety and quality so I could talk on and on forever, um, but then you'd lose all your callers, Maggie. But um did, to try to sort of um, wrap it up, I think you pointed out to the fact that all clinicians come to work. Most clinicians go into healthcare because they feel the need to give to to help people. And so one of the greatest tragedies is that it, there's inadvertent harm caused by the very work that we do or don't do when it should be done in healthcare settings. And it's, it's really important for me to point out that when accidental harm comes to a patient, um, uh, very serious harm also happens to the caregivers who are involved because it is so counter to what their intentions are, and. Um, um and so that's a really important thing to explain. But the fact of the matter is that it's human beings who are taking care of other human beings in hospitals and other healthcare organizations. And when you have human beings working together, it's a very imperfect um, world. Humans make mistakes. Humans are fallible. Humans have capacity. You know, mm-hmm. there's a, the reason our telephone numbers are only seven digits long is by design. It's because the average person can only remember seven things in a row. And I don't know about you, but if I go to the grocery store to remember, four things. I invariably can't remember at least one of them. So humans are fallible. So hospitals and healthcare organizations have had to work very hard to put systems in place to reduce the chance that things will be forgotten, that information will be overlooked, that critical information won't be communicated. And all healthcare systems have done an incredible amount of work in that area. And so my early work was very much in looking at system design and improving systems that made it harder for practitioners to make mistakes. And when we did that, we actually found that we significantly improved the quality of care that patients had. We reduced infections, we reduced injuries, um, accidental injuries and um, we improved quality. Um, I'm just trying to think about what we did we in the hospital for example and across in many hospitals in the United States people used to think that it was absolutely um, went with the territory to get an infection in your lungs if you'd been on a respirator but we found out that if you practice a few simple things that those infections are in fact preventable and so now for example we just closed out our last year our last 12 months without having a single ventilator associated pneumonia. So lots of our systems improvements and protocols and guidelines have improved care, but we still accidentally harm patients. And what we've come to learn is that it is really human behavior that needs to change in order for the accidental harm to. to change. So in my own hospital, we're one year into uh, two years of, I'm sure, lifetime work, but two years of very intentional work around teaching our staff new behaviors that reduce the risk of accidental injury, iatrogenic injury, as you correctly um, called it, in the hospital, so that, um, so that we don't take things for granted um, as being done. We don't assume that a doctor has a result that he doesn't have we don't assume that a patient knows how to take their meds all those sorts of things there's very specific behaviors you can teach people to reduce harm in my own hospital since we've been doing that uh, we've been doing the education literally since march and we've reduced the rate of serious harm to our patients which was slim but it still happened by 40 percent since um, in the past year the okay. other thing that I want to make sure that I say is in hospitals, it's really only fair to patients and families who come into hospitals and to the caregivers who work here is the vast majority of things go right. Um, but when things go wrong and you're working with human beings, it's a really big deal. So even though things go the right the majority of the time and probably well over 99% of the time, you know, 1% is just far too often.
12: Well, that is... Um that is first that it does go right 99% of the time i know that that is in fact the case or more than 99% of the time but when it doesn't it goes wrong because you are dealing with human beings that is a remarkable reduction uh of 40% in, in in and and it was because you focused on the problem you accepted the reality that mistakes can happen unless we put systems processes and change behavior now i'm one of your um, One of the qualities and one of your experiences was in 2006 you received a fellowship from the American Hospital Association Health Research and Education Trust to become a patient safety leadership fellow. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what you learned in in that program and why it was talked about patient safety leadership?
9: Yeah, it was a great experience, and one of the things that I came away from it was sort of an inkling that I had. But once I walked away from the fellowship, I knew that the inkling was on the right course. And that is, while there's very there is some very clear science related to human factors, uh, human behavior, that sort of thing that anybody who's going to do this work needs to be acutely aware of because design needs to be developed around that the vast majority of good that can be done in terms of reducing harm to patients and improving patient safety has to do with building leadership capabilities and skill sets within an organization because in the end it really is um, in my mind all about leadership and so the fellowship focused um, on those science issues and on some system issues and 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 uh, those sorts of um, learnings, but I would say that at least 50%, perhaps more, dealt with um, the uh, just leadership uh, behaviors and becoming better leaders and understanding the characteristics and the qualities of leaders that were effective in, le- um, in moving cultures of organizations. And that was extremely valuable, and I took a lot of those lessons and brought them back to my own organizations, even brought some of the faculty um, back to st vincent's when we and have been on a journey ever since with the idea very intentional idea and i use intention purposefully we've become a very intentional organization since my fellowship because we brought a gentleman by the name of rick foster to our organization who i met in the fellowship he's done work with our leaders and one of the first things that he talked to us about was being intentional around all that you do as a very first step. And so our organization has become very intentional there's many more things to do than can possibly be done. So if you're intentional, you're able to be much more focused on doing those things that need to be done first to have the greatest impact. So in the end, I really believe patient safety is its really about building leadership capacity in your organization. And I'm not just talking about senior leaders. I'm actually talking about the bedside nurse, the housekeeper, the transport uh, clerk, all as leaders in their own right, because they need to be able to, for example, Take
12: the lead and stop the line if they see a safety issue. Well, that speaks to distributed power as well, and I know we are going to be running into a break in in about thirty minutes, thirty seconds or so. But I, but I think the very notion that you look at you look at leadership as um, something that many people in your organization can exhibit and can carry, and it doesn't diminish the power at the top or the leadership at the top. So when we're going to take a short break now, and when we come back, we'll go into that topic in more detail. This is Marguerite Calloway, and my guest is Carrie Eaton, and you are listening to Leadership Every Day on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please stay tuned, and don't hesitate to call in with a question at one 866 472 5788
6: Marguerite Calloway has been quoted as saying, In spite of very real challenges, effective leaders are able to create order out of chaos, garner new resources, set organizational priorities, implement needed changes, and create an empowered workforce. They are not just lucky. They have mastered the real work of leadership. Are you a leader who goes to bed at night and wish you could do better in certain situations? Do you sometimes wonder why things don't always go as planned? Do you want to see members of your team become better leaders? Do you look at your own boss and say, I could do better if only I had a chance? At the Callaway Leadership Institute, we are committed to helping you become a more effective leader. We offer a variety of practical, hands-on leadership development activities, face-to-face workshops and comprehensive in-house leadership development programs, as well as ongoing seminars offered both in-person and online. For more information about the Callaway Leadership Institute, visit callawayleadership.com.
8: Are you a wow, a wise, outrageous woman of a certain age who wants thrilling work, vibrant health, joyful relationships, financial freedom, and the new F word, fun, in the next stage of life? Join host Lynn Schreiber in the wow zone each week where you'll meet amazing women who are creating lives filled with passion, purpose, and pizzazz. In the Wow Zone, broadcast live every Tuesday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Anything is possible.
6: News, News. opinion, Can you hear me? Your voice counts. Call toll free 1 866 472 5787. 1 866 472 5787. VoiceAmerica.com You are tuned in to Leadership Every Day with your host, Marguerite Calloway. To become part of today's discussion, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to marguerite at callawayleadership.com. Now, back to the program.
12: All right. Carrie, I haven't received any um, emails or calls in because I think in some ways this is uh, the very first show, but I want to let everybody uh, know that at the end of the show, in 24 hours, you will be able to go to um, the same website that you're listening on now and you'll be able to download um, a podcast. You can also sign up for um, the RSS feed so that you will be notified when the new programs are coming out. I would like very much to um, pick up where we left off, and and you made a big point about talking about the fact that you cultivate leaders uh, not just at the top of the organization but throughout the organization. We call that distributed leadership, distributed power. Um, Can you uh, elaborate on why you do that and why do you think it's having a positive impact on um, your patient safety?
9: Um, Absolutely. I think it's, you know, all organizations just about have hierarchy, so you need to find some vehicle to um, create a virtual flattened hierarchy, if you will, or make sure that everybody has voice and it's equal voice when it comes to something like patient safety. It's non-negotiable that everybody has to be able to speak up because there's so much at risk we start by really working on accountabilities with our management level people because they need to be accountable in order to expect anybody else to be accountable but we do teach part of this um, teach and expect and manage and coach towards personal accountability and uh, and and one of my favorite questions literally if you ask anybody who I worked with who reports to me, technically reports to me, whenever they give me a, speak with me to tell me about a situation that has arisen, they will say to me and I know the first question that you're going to ask the first question you're going to ask is what is my contribution? So part of being a really great leader I think is always reflecting and even when it seems like whatever has happened couldn't possibly be something that you're responsible for that's your fault, if you will. What was your contribution? Perhaps because you can learn from your contribution. Perhaps if you'd done something differently it would have gone a different way or and so forth. And understanding your contribution sometimes brings you to the solution. So I, when I teach, my, we're teaching patient safety right now to all our staff and actually all our senior leaders, this is important, all our senior leaders are teaching three-and-a-half-hour courses to every single employee in the hospital about patient safety behaviors and how to be a high, highly reliable organization with respect to patient safety, that means our CFO, our chief financial officer, is teaching these courses. I'm teaching these courses. Our CEO is teaching these courses. We are really walking the walk, and it's made a huge difference. We're being accountable really directly regarding the importance of this to our employees. But to ask a story, you know, I tell when I talk, culture is a huge part of um patient safety, and so I ask people, have you ever gone to work, and most of us can identify with this, have you ever gone to work and looked at the schedule and looked to see who was going to be on duty that day? And when I ask that question, everybody sort of grins and giggles and raises their hand and says that they do. And then I say, and and why do you do that? And then I always get the same response, which is, well, I do that to tell what kind of a shift it's going to be. (laughs) And then I ask, well, how can you possibly tell what kind of shift it's going to be before it even starts? I mean, how do you know? How can you reasonably predict it? And then they answer and they always say the same thing. Well, it depends on who's on. If I look at the the schedule and it's a great team and I know people are going to really be there to help me when I'm in a bind and keep me safe and keep our patients safe and they're fun to work with and they're fair and they're not irritable and they care about patients and they care about their teamwork, it's going to be a great night no matter how busy we get. But if I see one or two names of people who are moody or irritable who are out for themselves and they don't really give a darn about the rest of the team, I know that even if it's a slow night, it's going to be a tough night and that speaks to culture. But then the last question I ask is okay, you can't change all those people that when you look on the schedule that you think they're grumpy and tough to work with, but you can change yourself. So the question I need you to self-reflect on is when you look at that, when other people look at the schedule and they see your name and they see that the shift is that you're on that shift, what kind of night do they think they're going to have? And if for one second you think that perhaps you're tough to get along with or people maybe don't want to work with you because of those reasons or they look at the schedule and it's going to be a tough night because you're there, the only person who can change that is you. So one of the big fundamental things for me comes down to personal contribution. I think that's how you flatten an organization. I think that's how you create leaders. You're leaders because you manage yourself well. And if you can create that throughout all the different levels of an organization, you will create something pretty incredible people who are willing to speak up.
12: Well, what you actually have done is, is as I'm listening to this, you've increased uh, personal contribution. You, you focus on the positive aspect of it. Uh, there's such a tendency when problems go wrong is to find somebody to blame. And that we see it around the globe. We see it on any crisis. We'll blame our spouses. We bring it into our personal life. And yet you and I both know that, uh, what we're learning to get the most out of people is, is that blaming doesn't accomplish anything. It triggers fear. Um, how have you grappled with um, the notion of taking fear? You really are taking fear out of you. At the core, you're taking fear out of your organization and allowing people to speak their truth, make their contributions, and feel safe. So patient safety is re- is Directly reflected in a, a safe working environment, I would assume.
9: Well, we're working on it. We again, it's something we've been very intentional about. And about two or three years ago, we implemented something that people could Google if they wanted to look at. It's called Just Culture, and Just Culture does just what you talk about. It uh, it's not a no-blame um, environment. In healthcare, we went from blame, and literally, you know, if you made a mistake, you pretty were guaranteed to be punished, if you will. We didn't look too deeply to find out whether or not. We'd sort of environmentally set you up to make the mistake, you just got punished. We realized that that didn't work and it created a lot of fear, and then healthcare moved all the other way. The pendulum swung to no blame, and then what happened was nobody was accountable. Bad things happened, and if there was truly a, um, you know, the fact of the matter is there are some folks who um, sometimes don't do what they're supposed to do, have competency issues, and those sorts of things, and if you don't deal with those, issues, then you have a problem on your hands. So the pendulum then swung back to the metal, of, which is now called just culture, where it's you create, um, you evaluate anything that happens, and you look at what were the circumstances that caused this to happen, and you address those circumstances, and you make it harder to do the wrong thing the wrong thing. Fact of the matter is many employees when they make mistakes are responding to production pressure just trying to get things done more quickly, trying to get more done. They're trying to work harder and sometimes they cut corners that shouldn't be cut. So in an, as a, I as a leader have a responsibility to help them connect the dots and see how that's not safe just like it might not be safe to drive 70 miles down the highway but I bet lots of us still do it. We realize it's unsafe after we have the car crash um, and so we work with with employees to connect those dots to realize what is truly not when you're in a high-risk situation for harm that you really need to practice low-risk behaviors, and that's part of a high-reliability organization. If the system can do something and make a change to make it harder for the employee to make the mistake, then that's what we do. Um, If it's a behavior issue, then we talk about the behavioral changes that need to occur, and that's what we do. If there is an issue that requires disciplinary action, there's repeated um, or willful neglect of policies and procedures that are really designed to keep somebody safe, and the person knows about them, and everybody else seems to manage to follow them, then we do create that accountability and, and, and work that through. But it is, the operative word is just, um, and that creates accountability in an organization. And it also allows people to speak up so that things can get fixed that will make it harder for people to make mistakes.
12: Okay, well I, again, people can google just culture and I think that's a, a good resource for people to start thinking about in terms of their own organizations because it's not just healthcare organizations that need to reduce errors or keep people engaged and motivated. It's all organizations. I think with healthcare, uh, because of so much of it is a personal service and because it involves people's well-being and lives, people and their family members and so forth, the stakes are higher. I wanted to ask you as I'm listening to you what uh, you just ran through. It could be a system. It could be the people. It could be the behavior. It could be policies and procedures. Um, you're demonstrating what I like to call uh, applying systems thinking and strategic management. As We've focused so much on one-point solutions in the last uh, management things. What is your thought about, uh, looking at all of the variables, and how do you manage to sort out what's important and what's not? Boy,
9: um, you know, that can be really difficult because sometimes it feels like it's all important. You know, we are working in a hospital. We're working with patients. We're working with families, um, but it's the way that we do it is, Again, very intentional, very deliberate, and we actually do a we we assess our external environment, we assess our internal environment, we look at our all our own metrics about how we're how well we're doing in important aspects of care delivering the hospital, and then, as a team, we sit down and determine what are our strategic priorities. Develop strategic priorities with targets and then sit down and say, okay, if these are our strategic priorities and these are our projects that we're going to, these are our strategic priorities and these are the outcomes we want to achieve by the end of a certain time frame, what are our methods going to be to get to those targets? And then we're again very deliberate about, well, these are the methods that we are going to use. And then we roll down all that information throughout the organization so that we're all working on the same thing. We're all trying to achieve the same targets, the same outcomes, and we're using the same tactics to get to those strategies because it takes um, all of us moving in the same direction, looking in the same direction in order to achieve what we're trying to achieve, as opposed to everybody sort of off going, each department going and setting their own goals and going off in their own direction sometimes at odds with one another. So that's our process that we use. It's been very effective in the organization. That doesn't mean that sometimes two months in, three months in, you have to make an adjustment because something new occurs in this environment that requires us to respond in a rapid way and we need to make some adjustments. So it seems like there are things that get added the great threat is having too much on your plate and then not doing anything well. And that that is really a tough um, threat, especially in today's economic times, the financial burdens on healthcare providers is worse maybe than it's ever been, which is in sometimes a double-edged sword in that it can be, there's two sides of that coin, I guess is what I mean to say, it can be really tough and really threatening. On the other hand, it will promote creativity and innovation to do the right thing, hopefully like we've never seen before. So it does. So we work very hard in our organization to create a structure for alignment in order to keep those to keep focused on priorities and also our behaviors um, in alignment in order to keep focused on those priorities. So it's a very deliberate process, and we're constantly measuring ourselves to see see whether or not we're on target or off target, whether or not we need to make adjustments in our course uh, as we go.
12: Well, you just have done an excellent description of uh, what is needed to have alignment in an organization. It starts from looking comprehensively, developing priorities, saying we're going not to do some things while we focus on those, and then making sure that throughout the organization everyone knows that. That's when you actually get to um, a higher-performing organization. So that's an excellent description. It's hard work, as you well know. It's time now to take a short break. This is Marguerite Calloway, and my guest is Carrie Eaton. And you are listening to Leadership Every Day with Marguerite Calloway on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please stay tuned, and when we come back, we'll be talking about relationships and specific qualities that healthcare leaders must have. Thank you.
6: Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Marguerite Calloway has been quoted as saying, in spite of very real challenges, effective leaders are able to create order out of chaos garner new resources, set organizational priorities, implement needed changes, and create an empowered workforce. They are not just lucky. They have mastered the real work of leadership. Are you a leader who goes to bed at night and wish you could do better in certain situations? Do you sometimes wonder why things don't always go as planned? Do you want to see members of your team become better leaders? Do you look at your own boss and say, I could do better if only I had a chance? At the Callaway Leadership Institute, we are committed to helping you become a more effective leader. We offer a variety of practical hands-on leadership development activities, face-to-face workshops, and comprehensive in-house leadership development programs, as well as ongoing seminars offered both in person and online. For more information about the Callaway Leadership Institute, visit CallawayLeadership.com. network the internet's number one talk station number one talk station voiceamerica.com you are tuned in to leadership every day with your host marguerite calloway To become part of today's discussion, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to marguerite at com. Now, back to the program.
12: Well, here we are in the last segment of our show, and we could go on and on about aspects of patient safety and leadership and how do you actually get people motivated to um, doing the right thing consistently and identifying when it's not going right so it can be fixed. What I would like you to talk about now, Carrie, is from your perspective as the chief administrative officer of, of the organization. And if you could take a little bit of time and explain what a chief administrative officer in a hospital actually is, and who they do is. What are the kinds of relationships that you believe um, are central to being a leader in a healthcare organization? Um, to the
9: first part about the chief administrative officer, I probably have a fairly unique role, which maybe is you know, and maybe there's a lesson in that. I am a nurse by background, as people might have picked up. I was an emergency department nurse. I became, um, did a lot of leadership work in quality and patient care quality and um, case management and patient relations and all that sort of thing. And I actually, my CEO in a a meeting that we had asked if there's anything else I was interested in doing. And I said, you know, I've always wanted to have some experience in some operations. And because I said that i asked i uh, she uh, assigned pharmacy and laboratory to me as for operational le, uh senior leadership management, and I really liked that and it but it the message there is that I had a leader who listened to something that I wanted to do and wanted to try places that I'd like to see if I could again make a difference. And it's that kind of listening, having a voice in your own destiny and having leaders who listen to you and help craft a future that is mutually beneficial to the leader and to the organization that I think helps to make an organization um, excel and not to put people in little boxes that are, you know, pre-described in some book somewhere is to design something that works for your uh, own organization based on some sound leadership fundamentals. Over time, that kind of evolved. Um, we there had some success in those areas, and so now I sort of have operational experience for a number of ancillary support departments and the emergency department. I love the emergency department, so I've um, been honored and allowed to be the administrative leader for the emergency department and conduct a turnaround in that department over the past year, which has been one of the most fun things I've ever gotten to do, um, so that's what a chief administrative officer does. I'm one of the senior leaders uh, you know uh, um, one of a team, and I'm a voice on a on a team that makes decisions about how to operate this hospital in a way that works for patients and families. We're very collaborative, and that's an important part of a a, a successful leadership team, I think.
12: do you think that? Your background as a healthcare provider, as a nurse, uh, enriches your capacity to lead. And in what ways do you think that does? And also, what did you have to overcome um, as a as a clinician and that particular clinical training as you moved into leadership roles?
9: Well, I love that um, we're seeing more and more doctors and nurses around the senior leadership table uh, and having uh, that sort of a role in crafting the destiny of an organization, if you will. I think it's been a wonderful um, addition because you really have people who truly understand what it's like to be at the bedside and truly understand the the what is faced by patients um, and families when they come into an organization, understand the operations, understand the complexity. The complexity of delivering health care in a hospital is unparalleled, and I even think that it was Peter... Uh, 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 Peter Drucker said that it was, uh, healthcare was the most complex, uh, uh, organization he'd ever been in. It is very complex. You have physicians who are independent practitioners, you have patients and families who bring their own thing, and then you have your hospital employees. You mix all those together, and the recipe, you know, the cake never comes out the same way twice. And so that's maybe a little bit different than some other organizations. to overcome, I was a nurse. I wasn't a financial expert. I wasn't an operations expert. I was a bedside nurse. So I had to do an awful lot of work in making sure I understood how hospitals are paid, how the economics works. It doesn't really matter how good you are if you can't make sure that you are compensated in a way that is fair and just, and that allows you to invest in your organization and make sure that you are doing the right things for patients to come and for the patients who will be coming, you will be serving for the next, you know, several decades. So, had to definitely get some um, skills in finance, in risk management, understanding the law and the that affects hospitals. The regulation for healthcare is pretty complex and pretty incredible. And although well intentioned, sometimes incredibly hand tying, and actually sometimes creates risks in its in and of itself to doing the right thing. So there was a lot to be learned about how to um, understanding all those complexities in healthcare, and but the information's out there and uh, for the taking. And one of the best things about healthcare is just a learning lab, and there's it's uh, you get to learn so much all the time. Which again is to me one of the most important aspects of being a good leader is that curiosity and the learning that goes along with it.
12: Well, I have to say, as we come to the end of our time together, that you. Um, in the telling of your story i take away several things first of all i take away the notion that a leader uh... begins first with a set of deep understandings of what their personal values are often demonstrated early on in life and that they are cultivating that an effective twenty-first century leader seeks out new challenges is not comfortable with where they are today not only within themselves but where their organization is Um you speak to the need of being part of an overall team. Uh, you speak to the need of moving out of your comfort zone of your technical expertise as a nurse, which brings you an important and very valuable uh, insight But sec- and, and an approach knowing that we're here to care for people, but that you have to look at the financial side, the regulatory side, the technical side, the resource side that's there, and that that is um, pretty much of a lifelong journey. I also hear that uh, at the end of the day, if you're going to um, get it right, you really must focus on cultivating a culture, a culture of personal contribution, a culture of uh, shared accountability as well as personal accountability, and, um, and that behaviors and behavior changes are every bit as important as any of the technical regulations that are there. So I want to thank you for taking time with us today. For anyone who is listening to this program now, it will be available in about uh, one hour down, or one day, available for a podcast. Next week, we are going to take on another topic. I will be traveling to South Africa where I teach leadership and management for about six weeks traveling around the country. And we're going to be talking about leadership in uh, South Africa after the crowds of the World Cup have departed. And in in October, uh, when I come back into the United States, we're going to pick up uh healthcare and leadership for an entire quarter to delve into many of the topics that Carrie has had. So, Carrie, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. And you have been listening to Leadership Every Day on the Voice America Variety Channel. Happy listening, and I will talk to you next week.
6: Thank you again for tuning in to Leadership Every Day. Please join your host, Marguerite Calloway, again next Tuesday at 7 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, 1600 hours South African Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And remember to visit CallowayLeadership.com for more great ideas that you can apply this week.
0: staff,
6: and management. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. successful life the internet's number one talk station number one talk station voiceamerica.com
10: Listen to the stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. News,
6: News. opinion,
10: yeah. hear me.
6: your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. Streaming live